Thomas comes to preach the word of God. Well, good morning. Let me ask you to take your Bibles, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to just get your Bible in your hand, your hard copy or your electronic copy. Just want you to hold it in your hand for a minute. I want you to think about a couple of challenges before we actually dig into the Word this morning. Get your Bible in your hand, and then I want you to do an exercise with me. I want you to get two numbers in your head. The first one should be really easy. The second one for some of us will take some work. So here's the first one. Please get in your head the number of people who live in your house today. That was easy. Yes, I trust. For me, it's Pam and I. So it's two of us plus our dog, Max. So three in our home. That's the first number. Here's the second number I want you to get in your head. The number of copies of the Bible you have in your house. The number of copies of the Bible you have in your house. It's always fun for me to watch from this side because I know what people are doing. You're going through your house in your head. Thinking, there's one here, there's one here. Tell me this by, by uplifted hand. How many of you would say, Chuck, we have more Bibles in our house than we have human beings. Let me see your hands. Hold them up, hold them high, and look around a minute. I want you to, I want you to see this. All right, you can take your hands down. Let me tell you why I want you to think about that. Because today as we gather, four billion plus people in the world have little or no access to the gospel. There are people groups all over the world who have none of the scripture in their language. There are people groups that have just portions of the Scripture in their language. We're trying to reach people around the world who don't even yet have a written language. We're trying to figure out how to get the gospel to them. My wife and I have been in places around the world. I, I have the privilege of serving with missionaries. I have a group of missionaries that I get to supervise, and I watch what the Lord's doing through missionaries around the world. We've been in places where the people we're trying to train have just a few copies of the Word in their language, and we watch them and work with them as they pass those copies among themselves, just grateful that they have the Word of God in their hands. And we've been with people who have just portions of the Scripture and they long for more. And there are missionaries working to try to help them get that word in their language. That's the rest of the world. Then I come back here to where we live in North Carolina. And there are just two of us in our home. And I can't tell you how many copies of the Bible we have. And I get the privilege today last night, today, in this service, in the Sunday school hour, of opening the Word of God. The entirety of it, by the way, from Genesis to Revelation, in our language, we've been graced enough to have the ability to read this Word. We have the entirety of it in front of us, and I can open it today without threat on my life. When there are brothers and sisters around the world who today open this word at their peril. 
And you know what? You and I, who have such access to the Word of God, we are really, 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 really blessed. And I don't want us to take that for granted. And I want to challenge you. Your pastor didn't ask me to do this, but I want to tell you something the Lord's teaching Pam and me, and has been for a number of years. I want to challenge you as you think about your, your faith promise, your, your giving toward missions for the next year. One of the things the Lord convicted us about a number of years ago is that we love to give to missions. We love to give to support missionaries. And so we always strategize. We always build that into our, into our budget. And here's, and here's where we began to be convicted. We realized that in many ways we were giving, but we were giving out of our excess. We were glad to give what we had given and were giving, but when we really stepped back to look at it, the truth is we were giving, but we didn't even feel the sacrifice because we were giving out of the excess dollars that we have. And the Lord just burdened us that, all right, Chuck, all right, Pam, when you give to missions, I want you to give to support the work of the gospel around the world that billions of people who do not know will hear the good news, and I want you to give until it hurts, until you feel the sacrifice, because we're sending out missionaries. You're working with missionaries on your team who are paying the price, and I want you to give until you feel it. I just want to challenge you to think about that. I don't know what the Lord wants from you, but I would challenge you to pray this prayer. Lord, challenge us to give until we feel the sacrifice. Does that make sense? I want you to pray about the gift the Lord has given to you. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're talking about the reality of spiritual conflict. And last night we looked at the picture of lost people who are following the prince of the power of the air, who are blinded by the God of this world, who live in the domain of darkness, who are caught in the devil's trap, and who live under the power of Satan. All those texts that we looked at from the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul giving his testimony in Acts 26, and we recognize that, all right, we're trying to reach people who are held in darkness, and the enemy comes after us because we're called to be the light. We're the target of the enemy's arrows. In this, in this hour together today, I want us to think about one of Satan's very subtle strategies to keep us from being Great Commission believers. And then the Sunday school hour, I encourage you to stay with us as we're going to gather together and look at other strategies of the enemy to attack the, the people of God I want to walk you through a portion of the Gospel of Mark to help you see this strategy. I trust you've got your Bible in hand. We're going to blitz through the first six chapters, which sounds like a lot, but I promise you we'll do it rapidly. Start with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Here's the way this book begins in what is considered to be the title of the book, the beginning of the Gospel, and it's the Gospel of whom? Read it to me. The Gospel of... Jesus Christ, who is who? The Son of God. Look at where this book starts. This book is about good news, and it's not good news about just anybody. It's about Jesus Christ, who isn't just anybody. He's not just another rabbi. 
He's not just another religious teacher. He's not just a scholar. He's not just a king. He's not just a prophet. No, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that's what this book is about. When we move forward in this gospel, Mark's gospel is the fastest moving of the gospels. It moves so rapidly that by the third chapter of this gospel, we're a year and a half into Jesus' ministry. The word immediately occurs more than 40 times in this book. Immediately, 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 immediately. It's almost as if as you read this book, you're supposed to run out of breath as you read it. And these scholars believe this is Simon Peter telling his story to Mark, and Mark's recording that. And that makes sense to me because Peter did that. He just talked a lot, and sometimes rapidly, apparently. So he tells the story, and this story is about Jesus, the Son of God. We move quickly into verse 11 of chapter 1. This is the baptism of Jesus, and for the second time in this gospel, we learn who Jesus is. And a voice came from heaven. This is the Father speaking at Jesus' baptism. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So, who is it this time that says Jesus is the Son? It is the Father. So, the writer tells us in verse 1. The Father tells us that in verse 11. And then Jesus' ministry just moves forward. He is tempted by the devil. Mark records that very quickly in just a few verses. Then Jesus begins his work. He calls out his first disciples. And go with me to verse 21 of chapter 1. I want you to see and hear words that are recurrent in this gospel. Here's what we read in verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. Now, here's what I want you to see. They were, tell me what the next word is in your scripture. They were astonished, many versions read. They were astonished at his teaching. If you're comfortable doing this, underline the word astonished there in your, in your scriptures. Highlight it on your phone, however you wish to do it. I want you to see what happens here. The people are astonished at Jesus' teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. You see, everybody else who had been teaching was teaching something that somebody else had taught them. They're teaching on the authority of scribes who came before them. Not Jesus. When Jesus comes, he is the truth. He speaks the truth. And he speaks with authority like they had never seen. They had never heard anyone speak quite like he had spoken. Go on, teach like he taught. We'll keep reading in verse 23. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, here's the third time in this chapter that we read who Jesus is. Who is it this time that says Jesus is the Holy One of God? It was the writer. It was the Father. Now who is it? It's the demon. One of the interesting things in the Gospels is this. Sometimes the demons better recognize who Jesus is than the religious leaders do. The demons know he's the son of God. The religious leaders call him a blasphemer. He's the holy one of God. In verse 25, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. Now, verse 27, here's the theme again. They were all what? 
amazed. Underline the word amazed. So they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now pause there. They heard Jesus teach and they're astonished. We've never heard anybody speak like he speaks. He works miracles like they have never seen. We've never seen anyone with this kind of authority. And I want you to see what they do when they are astonished by Jesus. Look at verse 28. At once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. So look at this text with me. They're astonished at his teaching. They're amazed at his miracles. And what does verse 28 tell us they do? They go talk about him. And that's just the way it works. When you're amazed by Jesus, when you are astonished by Jesus, you will tell others about him. And I want you to see that pattern in this gospel. Go with me to the end of chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. In this case, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. The man is begging Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus does so. And immediately the leprosy leaves him in verse 42. Then look with me at verse 43 of chapter 1. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So here is this man with leprosy. Likely he has... He has digits that are falling off skin that is disappearing because of this disease. And Jesus comes and he makes him clean. And Jesus says to him, look, don't go tell anybody yet, but do what your tradition calls you to do. Go to the priest and let him declare you clean. But watch what the guy does. Verse 45, Jesus told him, don't go tell anybody. Verse 45 says this, yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. In this case, Jesus told him, don't go tell anybody yet, and what does he do anyway? He tells everybody. You know why? Because how do you keep it quiet when Jesus rocks your world? How do you stay silent when Jesus makes you whole? That's the pattern we see in the Gospels. Go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, the first 12 verses, this is the story of the paralytic. Perhaps you remember the story. If not, I'll just tell it to you briefly. A man was a paralytic. His friends wanted to bring him to Jesus, so they, in essence, carry him to Jesus. They get to where Jesus is, and the crowd is so great around Jesus that they can't get to him. They're, his friends, filled with faith, determine how are we going to get him to Jesus. So they go to the top of the roof of this house and they begin to tear the roof off of that first century home and they lower their friend to, to Jesus. And Jesus forgives the man's sins, which stresses out the religious leaders, by the way, because only God can do this, but we've already learned this Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. And then he tells the man to get up and walk. Look with me at Verse 10 of chapter 2. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now let me ask you a simple question. When the Son of God tells you, get up, take your mat, and go home, what had you better do? Get up, take your mat, and go home. 
and how quickly should you do it? Yep, look at verse 12. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, here's the wording again, they were all what? In my version, means astounded. They were all astounded and gave glory to God. Now watch what they do. Jesus shows up. He teaches like they've never heard. He works miracles like they have not seen. They're filled with wonder, and the result is this. They gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. They talked about Him. To anybody and everybody, they talked about Jesus. That's the pattern. Go with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 35, the end of this chapter. Jesus puts his disciples in a boat and says, let's cross over to the other side. Let's get into the story, and I want you to see it with me. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so the boat was already being swamped. And so you get this picture. The, the sea has erupted, and the waves are breaking over the boat, and they're in danger of, of sinking. And meanwhile, what is Jesus doing in verse 38? He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. Now, why is he sleeping? Well, let's think about this. Practically, in all of his humanity, because he's all human being and he is all God at the same time, in his humanity, why is he sleeping? He's tired. He's weary. Why is he sleeping in his deity as the Son of God? You know why he's sleeping? He's not worried. Because, you see, the waves don't frighten you when you made them. And the wind doesn't bother you when it moves at your command. He's sleeping, but he's absolutely and fundamentally in control. It's disciples who think he doesn't care. So they woke him up. Look at the text. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up rebuke the wind, and said to the sea, silence, be still. And again, I ask you, when the Son of God, who made all things that had been made, says to nature, calm down, what will nature do? Here's the text. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, these disciples had been with Jesus. They should have known more about who he was. They should have been more amazed by who he was. But they weren't there yet. They're still caught in fear. And Jesus says, don't you get it yet? And verse 41 says this, and they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They talked to, who is this? As they learn even more about just how magnificent he is. Let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters in this room as followers of Christ. When's the last time you were so amazed by Jesus that all you could say is, who then is this? Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. 
Let's go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, there are three stories. One, a man possessed of multiple demons. Another, a woman who has a blood disease. And a third, a ruler of a synagogue whose daughter is dying. I want you to read with me about the man with the demons. Look with me in verse 3 of chapter 5. And listen to the chaos of his life. Verse 3 says, he lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because it often been bound with shackles and chains, but it torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. See see this story with me. I imagine this, this man wandering among the tombs on the hillside and Gashing himself with stones, maybe in an attempt to to take his own life. And people have tried to chain him and shackle him, and he breaks the shackles and the chains. And I can hear his crying in the night, just echoing off the hillside. And this is the, the man of whom mamas would say to their kids, don't go near the graveyard, that crazy man's there. The picture we see is a man filled with chaos and surely fear. He's out of control. But Jesus is coming. And who is Jesus? Tell me again. He's not just another rabbi. Who is he? He's the Son of God. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. He cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Again, the demon recognizes this. I beg you before God, don't torment me. Notice that. The demons know they are done for when Jesus shows up because he's not just anybody. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. You might remember what Jesus did. He cast the demons out. He cast them into swine. The demons drive the swine into the sea. That stresses out the people who own the swine. And they say to Jesus, in essence, they begin to beg him to leave their region. Well, look at what the man wants to do in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Now, you know what? That makes sense to me. If my life's been out of control, nobody's wanted to hang out with me. I've been living among the tombs, and here comes this this teacher into my life, and he casts all the demons out, and now I'm in my right mind, and I'm fully clothed. I guarantee you I just want to hang out with him. I just want to get in the boat, and let's, let's just hang out together. That makes sense to me. But watch what Jesus did in verse 19. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim to the capitalists in a large region how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all what? Amazed. And look at the picture again. This man completely out of control, possessed by the demons, supernaturally strong, and into his life comes the Son of God who frees him from the demons. And he says to this man, you go back home and you tell people what what I've done for you. This man goes back, I can just see the people saying, wasn't wasn't that the demoniac? 
The last time I saw you, we want to know part of you. And they saw how much Jesus had done for him, and they were amazed. Now, I don't know your stories, but I have a suspicion that there are some of you in this room that when Jesus changed your life, there were other people quite amazed by it. Yes? No? Because our Lord is amazing. And when you're amazed by Jesus, what will you do? You will talk about him. And we go on in the next story in this chapter. And there is a ruler of the synagogue whose daughter is dying. We will learn that she's 12 years old. Jairus, who is a leader in his community, he comes to Jesus. He runs to Jesus. He falls before him and begs him earnestly, please come touch my daughter so that she will get well and live. Let me just ask you a practical question. Why would this ruler of the synagogue, whose daughter was dying, who I suspect has already done what fathers would do, he's probably gone all, to all the doctors, he's probably already spent all of his money, he's done everything he can do to bring healing to his daughter because that's what daddies do. Why would he come to Jesus? You know why? He must have believed Jesus can do something. And we know that because he says, please come touch my daughter so that she will get well and live. Now, here's my question. How did he know that Jesus can do something? Apparently, somebody had been doing what? Talking about him. So, he says to Jesus, come touch my daughter so that she will get well and live. Jesus agrees to go. Before Jesus gets to that house, he is interrupted by a woman with a blood disease. She, too, had been suffering for 12 years. She had spent all of her money and gone to all the doctors. She was not getting better. In fact, she was getting worse. And the text tells us that she heard about Jesus. Somebody was talking to her, too, because that's what you do when Jesus changes you. You talk about him. And she finds healing in Jesus. Just in the hem of his garment, she finds healing in fact, Jesus talks to this woman so long that word comes from the home of Jairus that the ruler's daughter had died. Jesus didn't get there in time, it would seem. But look with me at verse 36 of chapter 5. When Jesus overheard what was said, that is what had been said, is your daughter is dead, don't trouble the teacher anymore. He told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid only believe. So he tells them, you just keep trusting me. I know what you see. I know all the circumstances. I know the logical response is this. Go home, bury your daughter, and grieve with your wife. But I'm saying to you, you just keep believing. Jesus makes his way to the home of Jairus. He takes three of his disciples with him. They go into the home. There are people there weeping and wailing and Jesus casts them out, is what the text literally reads. He says to them, you get out of my way because I've got work to do. Look at what he does in verse 41. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now I ask you again, even if you're dead, when the Son of God tells you, get up, what did you better do? Get up. Verse 42, immediately 
the girl got up and began to walk. And we're told she was 12 years old. Now look at the next line. At this, they were what? Utterly astounded. I want you to see the pattern again. Jesus teaches like they haven't heard. Jesus works miracles like they haven't seen. And they are filled with wonder. Now, in this case, watch what Jesus says in verse 43. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Why, why in this case, tell them not to go tell? It's probably because they were in Jewish territory, and in that day, the Jews still misunderstood what kind of Messiah was coming. So it wasn't the time for them to learn. So he says to this family, don't go tell anybody, but guess what they did according to another gospel writer? They went and told everybody. Because how do you not, when your daughter's dead and Jesus comes on the scene and brings her to life again, how do you keep that quiet? They went and told everybody. And then he said, give her something to eat. That's really amazing to me because I see this picture. I see this story. This little girl has been dead. Now she's up. She's walking around. Surely, surely the family is rejoicing. I can see people on their knees before Jesus in gratitude. I can see their tears of joy running down their face. Maybe some have their hands in the air praising God. Maybe some have wrapped their arms around the, the legs of Jesus. I can see this celebration going on. And in the middle of the celebration, Jesus says, give the girl something to eat. Which seems strange to us. Why would he do that? I think there are two reasons. In one case, when he says, give her something to eat, here's what he's saying. This girl you see in front of you, she's not a figment of your imagination. It's not. It's not that that your grief is overwhelming, you're seeing something that's not there. This is not a ghost. No, this is really your daughter. I have really given her life again. In fact, she is in her physical body, and in her physical body, what does she need? She needs food. So he is validating the miracle when he says, feed her. But I think there's something else that's just, just fascinating to me. When Jesus says, give her something to eat, what must he know about her? She must be what? Hungry. She's been dead, for goodness sake. She might be hungry. Here's what I love about this. Particularly in this part of the gospel, here's what we see in chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. This Jesus is the master over nature. He speaks and nature obeys. He's the master over demons. He speaks and they flee. He's the master over sickness, that even in the hem of his garment... There is healing. Now we've learned that he is the master over death. This Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords before whom every single one of us will bow someday. This Jesus is the one who made everything that has been made. And you know what? This Jesus knows this little girl so intimately that he knows when her belly rumbles because she's hungry. And that's how well he knows you and me. And that's a pretty amazing God. That's a pretty sweet Redeemer who knows us that well. And if we're amazed by Jesus, what will we do? Talk about Him. Now go with me to chapter 6. Let me show you the problem. The subtle work of the enemy, chapter 6, verse 1. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were, look at the wording again, were what? Astonished or amazed. So once again, here's the pattern. They hear Jesus teach, and they're astonished. They ask these questions. Where did this man get these things, they said? 
What is this wisdom that has been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? So they, they ask, where did he get this teaching? Where did he get these miracles? They start up here with astonishment, filled with wonder. But then watch what they do in verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Now, I don't want you to miss what they do. They start up here with wonder. They're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his miracles. But then they reduce him to he's just one of us. Don't we know who he is? He's just the son of the carpenter. We know his, we know his mama. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. And they're offended by him. What starts as wonder becomes the norm. And watch what Jesus says in verse 4. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, look at verse 6. And he was what? Read it to me. Amazed. Now, to this point, who's been amazed in this gospel? It's been the people. Who is it now? It's Jesus. And he was amazed at what? Their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Now, listen to me. What's Jesus amazed by? He's amazed at their unbelief. You know what he's amazed by? He's amazed that they're no longer amazed. They were. They're astonished. But wait a minute. He's just one of us. And Jesus is amazed that they are no longer amazed. Now, here's my point, and here's the challenge for me. I'm a professor of evangelism and missions in a, in a seminary whose motto is every classroom is a Great Commission classroom, and yet this burden, this conviction is, is very real for me. For many of us, here's our story. When we become a believer, do you remember the days when you were so on fire for Jesus that you would tell that wall about Jesus? Remember, you didn't care if people listened or not. You're going to talk about him. Why? You know why we did? Because we're absolutely filled with wonder. Grace was fresh. Forgiveness was real. Sleep was sweet. The peace of our heart was unique. We couldn't believe that God had forgiven us, that Jesus had died for us, and the power of the gospel was so real in our life that we wanted everybody in our home, everybody on our street, everybody around the world, we wanted them to know about Jesus because we were filled with astonishment. And when we're filled with astonishment, we will talk about him. But here's what happens for most of us. The fire dies down. And the Jesus who amazed us becomes routine. It's just what we do. It's just what we've always done. And you know how we know when Jesus has become routine? We stop talking about him. And I don't mean talking about him to one another. You know, it's easy to come here in the worship service, to come here in your Sunday school class. It's easy to hang out with Christian friends and talk about Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about being so astonished by Jesus that we want our co-workers to know about him. We want our neighbors to know about him. We want our classmates to know about him. And we're so amazed by Jesus that we will go to the ends of the earth if God calls us to do that. When the fire is so real and the zeal is so powerful and we're so overwhelmed by the goodness and grace and majesty and power of Jesus that we want everybody to know. And I'm convinced that one of Satan's subtle strategies is to cocoon us in the church, to cocoon us among other believers. So we talk about him with believers, but we never talk about Jesus with non-believers. Not like we used to. And why don't we? You know why? Because we've gotten over Jesus. He's no longer amazing to us. And if we really want to reach our cities, the people around us don't need to see routine, mundane, normal Christianity. They need to see people who are so amazed by Jesus that they can't help but talk about him. And I want to challenge you as a church, as you think about supporting your missionaries, giving sacrificially to do that, perhaps to go as the Lord calls you, I want to challenge you at a more fundamental level. Are you so amazed by Jesus that you will tell your neighbor about Jesus? Are you so amazed by Jesus that you will tell your loved ones about Jesus? Are you so astonished by Jesus that you will tell your co-workers about Jesus? I want us to be amazed again. And I don't know where you are, but I challenge you this morning. If you know it's all become normal for you, it's all routine. And you know it, you hadn't even thought about it. But you have to admit it because you stopped talking about Jesus. I'm going to challenge you in a few moments to just ask the Lord, Lord, take me back. Take me back to the days of fire. Take me back to those early days as a believer when grace was so incredible. And God, give me my zeal again. Make me so amazed by Jesus that I can't help but talk about it. Got it? Let me pray with you, please. Would you bow with me for prayer? As we prepare for response time and your good pastor comes to lead that, I just want you to consider for a moment what the, what the Lord has said to you from His Word. Now, I want to ask you a question. I promise you I won't embarrass anybody, but I do want to ask you a question. I wonder if you'd be willing to say, even by uplifted hand, to say... Brother Chuck, I, I am one of those persons whose fire has become quenched, whose faith has become routine. And I know it because I haven't talked about Jesus to a lost person for a long time. I wonder if you would be honest enough to me to say, that's where I am. It's not where I want to be. So when we pray, would you pray for me that God would restore my fire. If that's where you are, do me this favor and just, just lift your hand, take it right back down. It's just a way for you to be honest and think about what the Lord's calling you to do. It may be today that you've never met Jesus. You've never met this Jesus of whom we have just read, the amazing, marvelous, 
astonishing Jesus. And you're here because God's brought you here to hear about Jesus. And if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, I encourage you as, as the pastor leads the way to talk to somebody in this church and let us, let us show you how to, how to follow Christ. Whatever God calls of you to do, let's obey the one who is our Lord. Would you stand with me now for a word of prayer? Stand with me, I'll pray, and then, Pastor, you take the response time from here. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the work of your spirit. Thank you, God, that we have your word in our language, in our hands. Thank you for the days when you filled us with wonder over your son. God, I thank you for a church that's passionate about missions, with a, with a heritage committed to missions. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who raised their hands, perhaps others who wanted to, whose fire has gone out a little bit. God, take us back to the days of fresh grace. Take us back to the days when we're so astonished by Jesus, we cannot be silent. Now guide us, Father, in this time of response as you wish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before Pastor Steve comes to conclude the service, we're going to sing in response. I'm going to ask you to take this hymnal, hopefully that you all have access to one, and I want you to turn to number 348, and I'd like us to sing a couple verses of this in the chorus before we sing our final song. We're going to sing verses 1, 4, and 5, following with the chorus each time. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned. sins and my soul. 